Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, if you would uh, open your Bibles. I'd like to begin today just uh, by reading from 1 uh, Thessalonians in chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 17. Here we find a, a sincere and heartfelt pledge uh, from the Apostle Paul on behalf of himself and of Silas and of Timothy who had joined them. Uh, just speaks volumes in support of the Apostle's preferred channel of communication. In verse 17, Paul writes, uh, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet, sin, uh, yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. I've titled today's message, Glory and Joy, Joy and Glory, uh, mostly because uh, with great passion, the Apostle Paul declares his joy, uh, twice, twice adding to that, combining it with uh, two different words for glory, uh, he does so well, just conveying the deepest concern, the deep, deepest levels of affection for Thessalonica and his, his longing to return to see them again face to face. Paul and, and Silas had both been hindered from doing so, uh, even though we're going to learn in our passage next week that Timothy was able to go as an emissary of Paul in order to visit Thessalonica. Uh, nobody knows exactly what Satan used to hinder Paul, uh, Paul and Silas from, from visiting Thessalonica. But I think that, that uh, Timothy's visit to Thessalonica gives us a little bit of a clue. Since Timothy could probably go, uh, there was probably still a warrant out for the arrest uh, of Paul and Silas, as we saw in Acts chapter 17. Uh, they were run out of town, if you remember, by cover of darkness. And Acts 17, if you remember, describes how an early convert there named Jason, along with a, a number of other Christians in Thessalonica, uh, they were required to post bail in order to get released from the civil authorities. Uh, they had to make a pledge uh, while Paul and Silas fled away to Berea by night. Uh, Timothy wasn't part of that initial visit. It was just Paul and Silas. Uh, Timothy came in later. So we can't know for sure. No one knows for sure. But my best guess is that, that Satan was using an earlier warrant for the arrest of Paul and Silas uh, to hinder them from returning to Thessalonica. Timothy, by contrast, he, he could come and he could go freely. Uh, 
Timothy displays one of the three methods of communication that were available to Paul. There were three. Uh, one was Paul wrote letters, one of them of which we're, we're studying right now together. Uh, also, he dispatched emissaries. You see throughout Scripture, Tychicus and Titus and Timothy being sent out as ambassadors of the apostle. And Paul uh, III uh, made personal visits. Made personal visits to these churches. Uh, and we are going to learn that Paul's preference of all of these was that he could go and visit them personally. That he could visit these churches uh, that he had helped to plant. Although he was not separated from them in spirit, uh, he, he was in body. He had, he had forcefully been torn from them, from those recent converts whom he viewed as his spiritual children. If you remember from uh, just two weeks ago, Paul compared his spiritual influence in Thessalonica uh, as a mother, a mother who would nurse her children. Uh, another metaphor he used was a father, a father who would be an encourager who would implore them or, or teach them just as any father would his own children. And the phrase that we see in verse 17 that states that Paul and Silas had been taken away, uh, the ESV, if you have an English Standard Version, translates this, we were torn away from you. Uh, that was a phrase that was literally, in that culture, used to describe children who were orphaned. So Paul represents himself uh, as treating them like a mother or a father might treat their children or should teach their children. And yet he was forced to leave his very own children behind as orphans. Paul considered the church his, his immediate family. You know, such language helps us to appreciate that Paul had the highest concern, the greatest concern uh, to return to them quickly, to return to them physically, to share the love that they had previously shared. He was taken away for a short while. Uh, the wording there literally means for about an hour. For about an occasion of an hour. And he was taken away in person, but not in spirit. So he's saying that in comparison to all things, I haven't been gone that long, but I desperately want to get back and see you again. Ah, sorry. A little emotional with Jerry. The Greek term for spirit in verse 17 is not pneuma. It's not uh, breath or spirit. It's cardia. Therefore, Paul is not suggesting that he, he misses it in a mystical, spiritual type sense. But he conveys that, that my heart remains with you. It's broken because our family has been temporarily separated. Folks, this, this says a lot for us about how we should view our relationship with Christ's church. You know, there, are, there are people, there are perhaps some even visiting churches today uh, who might say, you know, I could take it or I could leave it. 
The reality is, many people do. Many do. America is a place where people hop from church to church and swap relationships without ever really giving away their heart. When the, when the most precious thing available to us in this life is sharing our hearts. Some will leave because the music isn't just right. Maybe there's been a change in the carpet, the proverbial carpet change. Maybe some other scenery. Um, I even, even recently heard of a man who, who angrily left his church, uh, abandoned it uh, for a short season. They were, they were requiring their people to wear masks. The elders had asked everyone in the church to wear masks. They sought to understand what was going on for a season, appropriately navigate the virus. Someone says, you know, I'm not staying here. Folks, there are, there are various appropriate and acceptable uh, styles of worship and music. Uh, there are preferences on, carp on carpet. You might like Berber. I might like loop. You might like short pile, I might like long pile. There are surely competing views on masks. But these are just a few of the things, the types of things that can cause you to, to wonder, were they ever really part of the family? There surely exists an autonomous and independent spirit in this age. Paul suggests that Silas, myself, Timothy, we don't have that kind of spirit. Our heart belongs to you. Folks, there is, there is no greater joy available on this side of heaven than in the family of God. I'm not making that up. God's word affirms it to be so. Paul and Silas had no familial blood relationship with those believers in Thessalonica, but they had become to them in one spirit, one true spiritual family of God. It's the same spiritual family that is described by Jesus when he was told in Mark chapter 3 that his mother and his brothers had arrived. You probably remember the scene because there we are told in verse 21 that uh, they had actually come to take Jesus away to the funny farm. <laughs> that, that's true. His brothers had not yet believed in Jesus. It says there that his kinsmen or his family came to take custody of him. For they were saying he has lost his senses. Literally, he is insane. He has lost his mind with this large gathering of people that are coming around him. And his family concluded that uh, we better go, go take him into custody. It is on this very occasion in, Ma in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 49 where Jesus stretched out his arms towards his disciples and towards the crowds 
and said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Folks, you can't be born into the family of God physically. As we stated last week, you have to be reborn into it spiritually. That only comes through faith in Christ. And that is a family bond. A rebirth by the Spirit that cannot be broken. There is a mutual affection among true believers across denominational boundaries. It can't be imitated. It is pure joy. Rita and I experienced it at our previous church, Denton Bible Church. You and I have felt it, that spiritual connection at conferences, at gatherings with other Christians, an immediate connection in the Spirit. I even experienced it, uh, Rita and I experienced it even uh, with a, a rural Lutheran church up in North Dakota when we were up there on mission. Um, they were a church that helped rescue my parents from error. They took them in and cared for them spiritually, uh, strengthened them and taught them. And we could go to church and worship with those, those wonderful Lutheran believers. Um, we shared the same joy, the same spirit that we share together here. Uh, they are out there. They're out there and they are around. Um, who would have believed it? That a small rural Lutheran church was still uh, cl clinging to the word of God and sharing the same spirit that preaches Christ. Today our hearts still love those people. We shared the same spirit that was strong. Um, I can only imagine Paul the Apostle, what he must have truly felt for this church. He wanted to see them desperately. Therefore he states, we're all the more eager with great desire to, to see your face. 4 verse 18, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. You probably have a footnote in your Bible there that says Paul wanted to come to you uh, both once and twice. It really means again and again I have wanted to come and see you. And the Bible Knowledge Commentary adds this note that was entered by one of my professors at Dallas Seminary. His name was Thomas Constable. He was a giant in the faith. And Constable writes this, quote, he says, it's an unusual Paul, uh, it is unusual that Paul inserted his name in the letter at this point. He rarely did so in his inspired writings. Uh, the reason here may be that he wished to emphasize again in a different way that it was he himself who truly felt this way. He did not try to return just once, says Constable, but again and again he sought ways to get back to Thessalonica. Isn't that wonderful? And yet Paul says Satan hindered us. He hindered us. Again, we aren't told exactly how Satan hindered Paul's return. 
Uh, if Paul would have given specifics on exactly how he was hindered, uh, we would probably conclude that Paul's specifics don't match our specifics. So then the passage really doesn't apply to us in our experience. Uh, therefore, there are certain places in Scripture that are intentionally left vague. There's another one of them in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where we're told about a thorn in Paul's flesh. He describes it as a messenger of Satan to torment me, <laughs> to keep me from exalting myself. It was given to him by God. And we don't know what is the thorn. But we can guess at it. We can take an educated guess. Uh, but if we were told exactly what Paul's thorn was in his flesh, uh, we'd probably immediately dismiss it if it didn't match our situation. Paul had a thorn. We have thorns. He had distress. We experienced distress. Folks, what thorn has God placed in your life? What is it that he is using to keep you or I from exalting ourselves? Have we discovered that God's grace is sufficient? In a similar fashion, you know, what barriers has Satan used to hinder you from physically returning to experiencing the joy that is found in God's people? And are you striving to overcome them? Or are you just letting Satan win? Paul sends Timothy, revealing to Thessalonica, I am doing everything within my power, everything that I can do to return, because I am longing to see your face. I earnestly long to see your face. But too often what we see is not people's faces. People not even trying. Folks, we can fabricate all kinds of excuses all day long for not returning to the fellowship of God. Oh, there's a lion in the road. That writer of Proverbs knew that there wasn't any lion in the road. Instead, he's, he's mocking the types of excuses that we use as barriers. Making fun of the guy who won't even get out of bed to try to overcome them. Strive to overcome them. Folks, you know, as we elders had discussions about the streaming of services... I know it's a very popular thing to do. It's not, it's not necessarily a wrong thing to do. Um, when we suspended the streaming of services, uh, we did not do so haphazardly. We did not do so to be uncaring or unkind. But when Paul says, I eagerly desire to see your face, he isn't talking about, I, I wish I could see a picture of you. Folks, when you tell your, your parents at Christmas time that you miss them, you long to see them. Other family members, I want to be with you, 
and see you. It would serve as no consolation whatsoever if they sent a box and you opened it up and you know, found a sculpture of their head, would it? If they did that, you would probably open the package and call them immediately and say, you know, what is this, some kind of joke? I just shared my heart that I want to see you. We don't send people a photo album. Paul says, when I'm eager to see your face, it means I long to restore our physical presence with one another. I want to be with you. You can't share that kind of joy, that kind of glory that Paul describes over the phone. You can't do it over the internet or on a television screen. If that church, if all that church means to you is watching it on TV, folks, there are better channels and better preachers out there to watch. You don't need to say amen, Jeff Rogan. But you cannot enjoy what we share while being absent in the body. It, it is difficult for me to fathom how this passage and other passages like it would grant license to simply watching church. I can't fathom it. Or preaching via satellite link. It just doesn't fit. Folks, that is, that is simply nonsense. And for Paul stating in verse 19, he says, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In a similar way, he speaks to the church in Philippi, saying that you are my beloved brethren whom I long to see. You are my joy and my crown. He says, I long to see my joy. I long to touch my crown. Some have attempted to interpret this verse in a manner that portrays Thessalonica as being like, Paul's crowning achievement. As if Paul's boasting about everything that he had done. Folks, that is not what is happening here. In fact, verse 19 is, is often described as the crown of boasting. You might have heard of it. Uh, that is, a, that is a, a, a faithful translation. The crown of glory, the crown of exaltation, the crown of boasting. Uh, but Paul's not boasting in what he had done. He's boasting in what God had done. And he had done it through Paul's preaching. Elsewhere, Paul writes, I shall not boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. And the glory in verse 20, that's a Greek word that we call doxa. It means to bestow glory, to bestow honor on another uh, shortly after baptisms, we're, we're going to sing a doxology, a doxa, and we're going to praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? With our lips, we are going to honor another. So this boasting in a crown that Paul describes is not him boasting in himself. It's an anticipation of an honor 
that will be bestowed upon him by another. An honor not only to Paul, but also to Silas and to Timothy. It doesn't describe the glory of God. God says, I will not share my glory with another, but it is a glory and an honor that will, in its appropriate time, be given by God. In verse 20, Paul says to Thessalonica in the plural, you are our glory and our joy. You are our honor. You will serve as our crown of exaltation. For Paul, Silas, Timothy, Paul's saying you will become a testimony of the work that God has done through us and when will that crown come? It says it will be in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. Christ assures in the closing paragraphs of Revelation chapter 22, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Paul tells Thessalonica, you are our crown of glory. In effect, on that day, you will be the witnesses that testify of the work that God has used us to do among you. That's something. That God would bestow honor upon men. Paul says it's not only us, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8, he says, but each and every one who serves Christ, he or she will receive his own reward according to his or her own labor. Very important to recognize that this does not describe salvation that is earned as a reward. It's not salvation. Uh, for salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone alone as we sang earlier salvation is our unmerited gift Romans 11 verse 6 declares for if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works otherwise grace is no longer grace it's all the Lord's work but when he returns Christ is going to bestow a reward at his coming, he's going to give to those who are already Christians, who have already used their lives faithfully, who have employed the work of the Lord. He's going to give them each a reward earned on the basis of our serving Christ together as a church. This is the reason that Paul tells Thessalonica, you are our joy. You are our glory. And all the work that Christ is doing revolves around His bride, His church. You know, imagine if you yourself were a royal king. Just for a moment, you were a monarch. And you had betrothed yourself to a beautiful bride, one whom you love. And the wedding day had not yet come, 
And as you wait for the bride to prepare herself for that wedding day, uh, you have placed her in the hands of caretakers. You've placed your bride in the hand of custodians, those who have sworn loyalty to your throne. And when your wedding day arrives and you are face to face with your bride, and she appears joyful and beautiful, and she's walking down the aisle, all prepared, ready to meet you. And you can see through the veil the smiling mouth and the voice that is going to say, I do. You see her hair is brushed. She's happy. Her nails are perfectly manicured. And she is delivered safely into your arms. Imagine if that were you. No spot, no wrinkle. As a royal king, how do you think you're going to treat those caretakers when that bride walks down the aisle? How much more so a divine king who is awaiting his bride and the marriage supper of the Lamb? Folks, this is not in a selfish way. It is in a selfless way that Paul and Silas and Timothy are saying to the bride that is in Thessalonica, when you look good, we look good. (laughs) And it is you who will become our joy and our crown in the presence of the Lord Jesus at His coming. We don't have time today to uh, discuss how, how this this is the first very explicit reference in Thessalonica to Christ's parousia. As I had spoken earlier in this book, uh, it's a fancy Greek word that refers to the second coming of Christ, the second advent, as Ken had mentioned in that song, our anticipation of the second coming. Um, and the parousia will be mentioned in every chapter now going forward. We're going to see it twice in Second Thessalonians chapter Two, in direct reference to the events of the day of the Lord and that will be a day that the Lord will slay the lawless one with the breath of his mouth by the appearance of his parousia by his coming everything described in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is framed around this day In fact, Paul is going to draw our attention to this very parousia, the the second coming of Christ, three times before he ever punches the rapture ticket. You follow me? What then will already become established as the scriptural context of the rapture? It's the parousia. It's the second coming. And I'll wait until the end of chapter 3 and verse 13 to give a precise definition of this day that is referred to as the parousia. We don't, we don't have time today. But when that day finally comes, and when the bride sees Jesus face to face, and when he lifts her veil, we are going to want her looking really good. 
Today we have three men. One young man and two not quite as young. We have three men wishing to profess their faith in Jesus Christ through water baptism. Uh, water baptism is a public profession that you believe your sins have been forgiven through believing in Jesus' death for sins, his burial, and then his resurrection and future advent. Scripture assures that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Hebrews 10 verse 12 declares that having offered one sacrifice for all sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. And for by grace you have sa been saved through faith, and that uh, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, uh, not the result of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, so these three men, uh, you will see their testimony in just a few minutes, their testimonies, and they have rested in the finished work of Christ at the cross. But today is an extra special day. It's maybe the first time since I've been here that we have baptisms and the Lord's Supper on the same day. I'm not exactly sure. Um, baptisms are a one-time profession of faith in Christ. Uh, today we also get to celebrate the Lord's Supper which is a repeated memorial of Christ's work at Calvary. And as I read to you earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds us that Jesus commanded us to do this in remembrance of him. Um, and the Lord's Supper continually reminds us the events of that Good Friday, how Christ's body was broken, how his blood was shed for sins, how on the third day that he rose again from the dead and he was seen by the apostles.